Hi and welcome to the St Saviour's Finsbury Park podcast. Our vision is to be a church alive in God's love to serve the city. And we hope this teaching helps you to know God and serve him more wherever you've been uniquely placed. Let's jump in. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light. And there was even, and there was evening, and there was morning, and the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed on it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days of the year. And let, there, let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God sent them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. So God created, created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. It's a long one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. A lot of kinds. 
and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made and said that it was good. Wait, very good, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth was completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens of the earth when they were created, and this is the awesome word of God. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Good Amen. Thank you so much, Pete. And can we give Pete an extra round of applause, because this is actually his painting. He did this. Amazing. Thank you again, Pete. Um, I'm definitely going to move that because I'm going to knock that over 100%. So I'm going to gently move that over here. Um, but we are starting a new series and we're looking at this passage in creation um, that Pete just read so well for us. Um, and it's called, the series is called In the Beginning. When I was 14, I got into a little tussle at school and I was internally suspended, which essentially means I was stuck in a little white box for a few days of a room and was given work to do in there. And what made that even more embarrassing or even worse was that my mum was a teacher at that school. And so she found out before I found out. And you can imagine the car journey on the way home. It was pretty horrific. Um, it was a kind of a tussle between us that ended up with me partly jumping out of the car and her partly kicking me out of the car. Um, and I ended up walking um, a chunk of the journey home in a real strop, as you can imagine. It's got a teenage angst coming through. Um, obviously, before my mum then came back and picked me up and I got in because I didn't want to walk the rest of the way. Jump forward to 18, and I experienced my first charismatic worship service. We went downstairs into this church building, um, into the kind of basement, and it was this tiny little box room, um, and there was about 30, 40 people packed into this space, um, and everyone was just really going for it. I was quite freaked out. Um, but everyone was passionately worshipping God, and so much so that the worship leader at the front was in tears for most of the worship set. Um, it was quite an incredible and powerful experience. When I was 19, I was at university, um, and I met my now wife, Em, 
Um, uh, and we met through church and um, the Christian Union, um, and I pursued her through running. That's not as creepy as it sounds, I promise. Um, we just went running together for a few weeks, and eventually I managed to seal the date, um, and here we are now. Um, and then when I was 21, I was living in Birmingham, and uh, through the church, um, helped out with a kind of homeless outreach um, ministry that um, went and sort of prayed and just gave food and basic provisions to the homeless community in Birmingham. Um, and one of the regular spots that we would go to was this kind of underground car park that definitely wouldn't get past the St. Saviour's risk assessment today, but apparently it did back then. Um, and we would go into this car park and regularly meet with the homeless community down there. And this one memory really sticks in my head where we were, um, we sort of came across this, these two Polish men uh, and I just sort of sat and we gave them some tea and coffee and some crisps and um, different bits of food. Um, and then I just prayed with this guy, put my arm around him and prayed for him. I don't think he could understand a word I said. He didn't speak any English at all. Um, but we just had this incredible moment together. And I sort of looked up after I prayed and he was in tears. And we had a big hug. Um, and it's just deeply impacted me and sat with me since that moment. Each of these stories is part of a narrative I tell myself about my life. A story that gives me a sense of identity. It tells me who I am in relation to others. And knitted together, it gives me this narrative, whether it's true or not, of how I came to be here today. The story of creation in the Bible does exactly the same thing for us. It gives us an identity. It tells us who we are and who God is. Scholar Gordon Wenham describes Genesis 1-1-2-4 that we just heard as the majestic festive overture for the Bible. This beautiful motif that becomes the foundation and pattern for the rest of the story that unfolds. It's like how at the start of a film, you might get a piece of music with a simple foundational melody that later in the film becomes more and more complex than nuanced as the characters and plot lines develop. The melody might return to remind us of a particular character or a plot line through the twists and turns of the story as we go through. It's a motif that's returned to again and again. It's the first time we hear this. Or this. And when we hear those things, we're introduced, aren't we? We're introduced to who's who and what to expect from here on in in the story. And it's this first basic melody, this foundational melody of the Bible that we're going to be exploring over the next five weeks over the summer. Scholar Michael Heiser talks about scripture as a mosaic of pieces that sometimes need to be looked at from a different vantage point by taking a step back to fully appreciate the whole picture. And to see this first motif well, we really do need to do that. We need to take a step back. We need to pause to see the pieces as they sit together. And part of that is thinking about how we interpret this section of the Bible. Now, I should say from the start that there's lots of ways of interpreting Genesis. And lots of them are very convincing. So I'm not going to step on any toes here. But I'm personally most convinced by an interpretive lens called a literary approach. 
And here in Genesis, in this passage, it means seeing this section of the Bible as a kind of origin story for Israel, but in a liturgical, a poetic way uh, that we get because of the flow of the passage. These poetic elements include the passage's recurring statements that we see. So there's 10 commandments, 10 and God said moments. There's eight moments of order, let there be light, for example. Seven fulfillment statements, and it was so. And seven moments of approval, God saw that it was good. And this is, not all, this is all not to say that I'm right about interpreting the passage in this way. Like I say, there's multiple interpretations um, of interpreting it as a poetic origin story. But it's to encourage you to lean into this interpretation. Because I think there's a lot that we can gain from this understanding. And this lens also leads us to believe that this section of the Bible may have been written a little later on in the biblical timeline, potentially during the exile to Babylon. So think just before Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible, um, before they come along, during some of Jeremiah's writings, and likely by a bunch of scribes and priests who have been taken from Jerusalem off to Babylon into captivity. So we should be imagining a scene where a small group of highly educated and significant people for the life of Judah are living in a foreign land, taken from their people by force, and are then writing this story, this liturgical poem, as a means of retaining their identity, perhaps retelling it on a weekly basis, of remembering, of belonging, of embracing one another, of shunning the surrounding culture, this is a rebellious act, and it's a courageous one. It's a text, ultimately, of identity in a moment where their identity has been ripped from them. They've been moved to this foreign land. It's a story that articulates something of the ideal as they see it, and talks of the might and the power of God and the unique place of humanity in the created order. And we understand these key threads in this passage more and see the identity that the Judahites are trying to hold on to when we see that it was written against other creation myths that were circulating at the time. One such account that was circulating when this passage was written was called the Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian creation myth that would have been well established by the time of the exile in Babylon. And I want to give you a little taster of this story uh, and as we go through, maybe just try and spot the sort of similarities and differences between what Pete read earlier and the story I'm going to tell you now, and reflect on what that might mean for us. Uh, and also just go with me on this, try and lean in. There's lots of twists and turns in this story. I'll try and explain it as best as I possibly can. I'm probably going to mess up. Bear with me. So, the Enuma Elish begins with a watery chaos. The water divides into the fresh water god, Apsu, and the saltwater goddess, Tiamat. So we've got Apsu, the dad god, Tiamat, the mum god. These two deities mate and give birth to lesser deities, but there's a problem. These lesser gods are too loud, and they keep the freshwater god, Apsu, the father god, awake at night and harass him in his work during the day. So, as every good dad does, Apsu finally decides to wipe them out, to wipe his children out. But in a moment of concern, the mother god, saltwater goddess Tiamat, warns her eldest son Ea, uh, and Ea, in response, kills Apsu, his father, before Apsu can kill them. I told you this was complex. 
The death of Apsu sends the mother, Tiamat, into a bloodthirsty rage, even though she's essentially caused Apsu's death. And she creates monsters to kill her children. But one of the lesser gods, the champion Marduk, kills the goddess Tiamat and her champion, Quingu. Marduk splits Tiamat in half with an arrow. And when Tiamat is split in half, it creates the waters below on the earth and the waters above in the sky. So afterwards, Ea uses Quingu, this champion's blood, to create the first man called Lulu. And the, the, this sort of passage of the Enuma Elish finishes with this, this phrase that says, Ea created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. So the summary, or the TLDR for that little section, is that there's a watery chaos that descends into a battle between children and parent gods, resulting in the death of both parents and the creation of the earth and humanity in service to the gods. Okay, complex. Thanks for leaning in on that bit. Um, So when we're reading that, what do we think about the similarities uh, between the Genesis story, the Genesis creation story, and that enumeralish story, and the other stories that were circulating at the time. Well, there's this pre-existing environment present in all, all accounts. As we sang this morning, the spirit was moving over the waters. So there's something there in Genesis. And we see there's something there in the enumeralish too. The gods are these sculptors of matter. In Genesis, we see that God can create from nothing, but he also sculpts from things that are already there. Uh, and we see that in these other accounts as well. And there's also a focus on humans and their relationship to their deity. So there's some similarities here, but I think we really get to the crux of the matter when we look at the differences between these texts. So firstly, we see that there is a creator God in Genesis. So in Genesis, we see that God creates through speech. This is an act of power and supremacy. He doesn't need to do anything. He just speaks the words and things come into being. God even creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, as we heard. And these are things that were worshipped as gods by the surrounding culture. So he's, again, putting forward his power. God is powerful and supreme. He is the the sole creator in the Genesis story. Whereas in the Enuma Elish, I mean, it's it's a chaotic battle, isn't it? There's no singular creative power in there. And... The matter of gods, the, the kind of the physicality of the gods themselves, are needed in order to create things, uh, which we saw where humans were created from the blood uh, of one of the gods. What about order in creation? Well, again, in Genesis, the world is called good. It's ordered. There's a structure to it. And humans are given this kind of priestly role of enabling worship and sustaining a harmonious ideal that we see of ruling the creative world. And the sense of order is emphasized through what's called a chiastic or symmetrical structure that we see in the opening um, of this passage. Um, Essentially, what's happening here is that the the order of the passage is replicating God's order in creation. So there's a a poetic mimicking of what's happening within the passage uh, in, in the way that the passage is actually written. And that just enhances God's act of separation and order in creation out of chaos. Whereas the Enuma Elish is massively chaotic. The battle is a struggle. There's no clear order. Humans end up being created as slaves. So there's no role of enabling flourishing there at all. We're also, in Genesis, we see that humans are created in God's image. There's a unique place for humanity in imaging and ruling. 
something that points us towards God's ultimate image in Jesus. And that humans also are given this freedom to respond to God, to God, to the creator, as they wish. Whereas in the Numerilish, humans are created from blood, the life source of a discarded and defeated God, and they're created for slavery. And then there's this theme of being created with purpose, this Sabbath rest culmination to the Genesis story. Well, in Genesis, we see there's this priestly role that are given to the humans that draws us into a unique purpose of defending the good world that God has created, of drawing the whole earth into worship, of seeking peace and wholeness for all of creation. And the idea of Sabbath seeks to decenter humanity, ourselves from the story, and center God through resting as a declaration of the freedom that we receive through God. In the Enuma Elish, there's no purpose. It's, it's slavery. It's to keep the gods happy. There's no rest. There's no freedom to worship. There's no good world to defend. So these four themes, these four differences between what's going on in the culture around and what is being put forward in Genesis are the four themes that we're going to explore over the next four weeks of this series. Neurologist Oliver Sacks, in his classic book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, recalls a patient named Jimmy G, who was admitted to a home in 1975 when he was 49 years old. Jimmy was friendly and eager to, to cooperate with Dr. Sachs. He knew his name, birthday and hometown, and could tell Sachs about his early life, including his time serving in World War II. Jimmy's memories, however, ended in 1950. Jimmy informed Sachs that he was 19 years old, rather than 49, and became distressed when Sachs asked him to look in a mirror. He was stuck in the past with no short-term memory. Jimmy was smart and could beat Sachs at games and could recall scientific knowledge such as the weights of elements, but he couldn't remember anything past the 1940s. When Sachs told him that men had walked on the moon, for example, Jimmy laughed. Sachs hypothesized that Jimmy G suffered from Korsakoff syndrome, which is a rare condition brought on by alcohol abuse, which degenerates parts of the, main, the brain associated with memory. Jimmy did, however, develop a relationship with his estranged brother, despite not being able to recognize him at first, a relationship that seemed to bring him life. And towards the end of, of, of Sachs' account of Jimmy G in his book, he writes this, was it possible that he had been desouled by a disease? Do you think he has a soul? I once asked the sisters. They were outraged by my question, but could see why I asked it. Watch Jimmy in chapel, they said, and judge for yourself. I did, and I was moved. Profoundly moved and impressed, because I saw there an intensity and steadiness of attention and concentration that I'd never seen before in him or conceived him capable of. I watched him kneel and take the sacrament on his tongue and could not doubt the fullness and totality of communion, the perfect alignment of his spirit with the spirit of the mass, fully, intensely, quietly, in the quietude of absolute concentration and attention, he entered and partook of the Holy Communion. He was wholly held, absorbed by a feeling, 
There's no forgetting, no Korsakovs then. Nor did it seem possible or even imaginable that there should be, for he was no longer at the mercy of a faulty and fallible mechanism that of meaningless sequences and memory traces, but was absorbed in an act, an act of his whole being, which carried feeling and meaning in an organic continuity and unity, a continuity and unity so seamless it could not permit any break. Clearly, Jimmy found himself, found continuity and reality in the absoluteness of spiritual attention and act. The sisters are right. He did find his soul here. When we're stuck in a place we don't recognize, we cling to our identity. We cling to our relationships, to Jimmy's brother. We cling to our faith in the chapel. We cling to our work or how we spend our time. What do you cling to? Stuck in a foreign land and with no hope of going home and separated from their people, the Judahites wrote this poetic origin story to remind them of who they are, of where they came from, and of who their God is. This isn't a created narrative or a thrown together array of stories like I gave at the start about my life. It's purposeful. It's an intentional story about who this people is and who they want to be. It's the story they want to live in. What's the story we're living in? Is it the biblical story? Or are we digesting and living in a story with a different creator? A different order? A different image? A different purpose? It's easy to fall into this trap, to accept something else as the story of our lives. And let the biblical story fall into the background. If that's happened for you, why not draw close for this series? It could give you that foundational melody to build your life on. And as the bands come back up, I wonder if we also need to think about what the story is that we're living out. Are we living in light of the biblical story, or are we living in light of something else completely? Put another way, do our actions and words lead people into the story of Jesus? If they don't, perhaps we're not living out the story we want to. What does it look like for us to embrace the story of the creator, the order, the image, the purpose today? To tell the story of God and us, of God at work in our lives. And in a moment, I'm going to invite people to the front for prayer around this topic and I wonder if there's just a couple of groups of us here today. For some of us, we've not fully embraced the biblical story as our own. We haven't built our lives on that foundation. And the call today from God is come and follow me. If you feel like in some area of your life or in some way you need to fully embrace the biblical story, then in a moment I'd love you to come forward for prayer. And for others, It might be that we've embraced the biblical story, but we're not living it out. We're not living a compelling life that draws people into the presence of Jesus, that points people to the story of God. What would it look like in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your friendship groups, in your recovery center today, if you lived like this? If you're feeling that gentle nudging of the spirit now, I'd love to invite you forward for prayer too in a moment. 
So as we close, why don't we stand just as a moment of engaging with what God's doing in us. Might be that you want to just hold out your hands and close your eyes to receive. Might be that you just want to take a moment to reflect on what's been said. Just engage with God as you feel comfortable doing. And as we do, let's just listen for the quiet nudging of God. And as the band just begins to play for us, for those who either want to live in the biblical story more fully, embrace it in all of your life, or to live out the biblical story more fully, to live a compelling life for Jesus, can I just invite you to come to the front now? Just be brave, just push out from your rows, come to the front. If you either want to live in that biblical story more fully to embrace that in all of your life or to live it out more fully to live a more compelling life for Jesus I'm just going to hold some space why don't you come to the front now if that's you if God's just nudging you putting something on your heart